about coming this morning here as we worship together and we've sung praises to the Lord.
in, in college, there was a, I took a child development class. It wasn't my idea to take it. You know how random things stick in your brain and you don't know where you really got them? And you don't know, if, not really what you were supposed to learn, but it just kind of sticks in your brain? In this child development textbook, there was an illustration given, and it had a picture. I'll just try to recreate it for you. It was a table, and it had a little girl, about four or five years old, at the head of this table. And then these three other chairs were her stuffed duck, her stuffed cat, and her stuffed dog. And she was asked to tell the, the, the person talking to her what she sees. And she said, well, that's my stuffed duck, my dog, my cat. And then she was asked to switch positions and take the position of where the stuffed duck sat and describe what perspective, what vantage point the duck sees from its point of view without moving. And then the point of the illustration was she couldn't do it. She couldn't do it. She could only see her own point of view. And the point of the illustration in this book was until that child reaches a certain age, is able to get beyond this concrete form of thinking, this literal way of viewing her world, she will be unable to see any other perspective but her own. She will only see her own perspective. We can see her own, we can see the perspective of the stuffed animals at the table. She cannot. She needs to rely on somebody else to see another point of view other than her own. Suffering is like that. When you're suffering, when you're going through really hard things, there's a perspective that you can only identify with, and it's your own. It is hard to see any other perspective but your own perspective when you're suffering. We know that's true. And we know that there's one other person who can see our suffering from any other viewpoint from our own, and it's our Heavenly Father. And for that reason, there needs to be a, a trust there, a trust that relies on Him when we can't see anything else. In the passage we just read, uh, Paul is going through, he's recounting a time when he suffered to a dramatic degree. And the, the account that he's describing actually comes to us in Acts chapter 19. You can turn there if you want, but um, I'm going to kind of summarize what he's talking about. He said, we went through this really difficult time, and I want to describe what time he's describing for us. If you want to follow along, it's Acts chapter 19, starting around verse 23, I think. But Paul is in Ephesus with his disciples, and they are proclaiming the gospel. And in this region, there was a silversmith named Demetrius. And Demetrius made his living. His livelihood was making these little silver shrines to the goddess Artemis. And he's noticing all these people getting on board with what Paul is preaching. Gospel, saving grace, freedom in Christ. And he's kind of getting worried, as any of us would, because... He's taking the business away from, you know, if all these people are following what Paul is proclaiming, if all these people get on board with Jesus Christ, we, we're not going to have anything to, we're not going to have anything to sell. Nobody's going to want the silver shrines. And so he talks to the people around him, and he gets all the other workers who are, are in the business of making these shrines stirred up. There's nothing like money to cause an uproar. And he succeeds in getting them all fired up. And what ensues is this all-out riot, chaos. <clears throat> and as it's going on, Paul notices, oh, something really big is happening here. And this is really out of our control. And he starts to panic. And he starts to worry. And he gets anxious. And he pretty much resolves himself to death. 
This is the way I'm going to die, apparently. There's no way I'm going to get out of this one. And uh, as the riot escalates, you know, it, the only perspective he sees, I guarantee you, is his own. He has this tunnel vision of this is just it, and, uh, and unless God intervenes, this is the way that we're going to perish. If you're doing an outline, I want to, I want to describe three ways. Three different reasons from this passage, and there are more that we could look at, but three different specific ways, reasons we need to trust when we can't see any other perspective but our own. We need to trust because God, because God allows suffering to focus our dependence on himself. He's focusing our dependence on himself. Secondly, we need to trust because God permits suffering to fashion our deliverance. He's going to bring us out of it. Sometimes he allows suffering to highlight, almost to showcase, to stage the way that he's going to do it. There's deliverance involved. There's our hope. There's a deliverance. And thirdly, we need to trust God because God uses suffering to feature his own design. It's not about us. It's about him and him receiving glory. And the way that he chooses to do it, I think as we look at it, will produce, it did in my own heart, a sense of awe. Why would he do it this way? Why would he do it this way? So, dependence, deliverance, and design. That's where we're headed. The first two focus on us, the last one on God. Firstly, we need to trust God because he allows suffering to focus our dependence. Look with me at the second part of verse 9. Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God. But in God. Think of all the words that come before this. There's affliction despair and being burdened excessively. Some of you can relate to that. Some of you were there this morning in that place. And I recognize that. I recognize that. These are descriptions of suffering. And they're real. And when you're there, it's hard to hear the message of hope. It's hard to hear the message of deliverance. It's hard. And I... Some of you will be able to relate to this. How many of you, raise your hand on this one. How many of you have ever been told yourself or you have been the one that has said to somebody else, you know, in response, I, I should preface this, in response to somebody who's going through something really hard, really hard, you've said, God doesn't put more on you, God doesn't put more on you than you can handle. God won't give you more than you can bear. Would it surprise you to know that that's not in the Bible? That is not in Scripture. He says, I won't give you more temptation than you can handle. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Some of you know the verse by heart. But just to give you more than you can handle, period, not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. And think about this with me, because if we're talking about somebody who's struggling hard, and they are at the end of their rope, Somebody comes along and they say, you know, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And that person starts thinking, well, I tell you what, it feels like more than I can handle. But if God doesn't do that, then I'm shifting my thinking. If God won't give me more than I can handle, then this load that feels oppressive to me must be within my range of handability. Now I'm thinking about what I must be the problem. God's faithful. I'm not even going to question him. Whatever it is that's in my lap right now must be handleable. Just made up that word. 
<laughs> so I must be the problem. I need to try more. I bet if I read my Bible more. I bet if I tried harder. I bet if I was more faithful. I bet if I did more. I bet if I served more. And immediately, our eyes go to ourselves, and we begin to paint the perfect recipe for despair. Because the more I try harder, and the more I try to be better, things that I am unable to do in myself, I am going to plummet into despair. Because I take my eyes off of the Lord. He doesn't give me more than I can handle. Do you know what scripture says the exact opposite? God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Really, really, we just read this. We just read this, and I want us to look at it again. Look at verse 8. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Beyond our strength. That doesn't sound like a handleable, handleable amount. Beyond our strength. NIV says far beyond our ability to endure. Getting a picture here? This isn't something. God's not going to give you an amount that you can handle. How does that say anything about the gospel? That's how to be your own God. I'm going to give you a manageable amount. And sometimes you hear people say, well, maybe God thinks so much of you. He knows you can handle it. That sounds awful. It sounds awful to me. If you feel like you're in over your head right now, guess what? You probably are. You probably are. You probably are in way over your head. But that's good news. That's good news because instead of trying harder, instead of trying to be better, something that you cannot do, by the way, I've tried. Many of you know a million ways that it won't work. Instead of trying harder, the point is that God has given you more than you can handle to thoroughly bring you to the recognition that you need help, that you need his help. It's good news to know that you need help and not try to buck up and be better and all those lies that people try to sell us. And, and maybe you're one of those people that say, you know, God doesn't give you more than you can bear. You don't say it vindictively. You don't say it to be mean. You're not trying. You're trying to bring hope. A lot of dumb things people say when they're trying to bring hope, and they don't know what to say. I'm one of them. I can tell you lots of stories. Not this morning. Not this morning. Ways that I've tried to be helpful, and it was really bad. It was really bad. What does this look like in our lives when we're trying to bring hope? We don't know what to say. Well, it's not, there's not one specific answer. It doesn't always look like you know such and such. Um, I can tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like be better, try harder, be more, uh, be more than you already are. It's about a dependence. It's about a dependence on God. And not only does God permit suffering to highlight, to show us that dependence, it is also intended to show us what deliverance will look like. What deliverance will look like. An amazing thing happens when Paul stops relying on himself in this passage. Deliverance. When he has his eyes on his circumstance, he's overwhelmed. We despaired of life. We despaired of life. You know what that's like. When he had this resolution, there was a change in his focus. And I want you to hear, this really spoke to my heart as I was studying this. As soon as Paul notes the change in focus from himself to God, notice what happens. Look at the descriptor he uses of God. Who raises the dead. God who raises the dead. Talk about a resume builder. 
Talk about inspiring awe in the span of a handful of tiny little words. Who raises the dead? Four little words. Think about being in an interview and saying, I can type 60 minutes, I can type 60 words a minute. Oh, and I can raise the dead. Oh, 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 we don't have anybody who can do that. Why don't you just kind of take yourself off the sheet? Oh, who raises the dead? Oh, you're in a class by yourself. Oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> the one who raises the dead, by the way, that's the one who your trust is in. The one who has the ability to deliver you from anything, you know, the one who raises the dead, that's the one who's going to deliver you. It ought to inspire awe and trust. That's the, uh, that's the point. Um, who delivered us, who rescued us from so great a peril of death? Uh, peril isn't really a word that we use a lot anymore, but think of a danger, a hazard, some kind of jeopardy. Um, that's what he's talking about. And I really want us to see God's commitment to us in these verses. Look at verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, he will yet deliver us. He delivered us from despair, he will deliver us. If we're serving a God who's promised to deliver us, there has to be an attentiveness on his part to know that we need delivering in the first place. If he's far off and he's removed and he's distant, how will he know what we need to be delivered? In these promises, I want us to see, to recognize, there is a deliberate, intentional delight to know when you need deliverance. And to fashion it in such a way that inspires trust. Inspires trust. This is the one who can raise the dead. He's the one that you're counting on to deliver you. And you're not just hoping, I hope he wants to. He says, you know what, I promise. I promise that I will deliver you, not just once, but this ongoing deliverance for all the suffering that will hit your life for the rest of your lives. God's commitment is to deliver you. Let me tell you what this does not mean. It does not mean that the things that you're hoping to, deliver, to be delivered from will work out the way that you think they should. It does not promise a, they lived happily ever after from this day forward. But it's a promise that his presence will meet you as you suffer in a way that, hear me on this, hear me on this, in a way that you wouldn't trade for anything. There is a presence of God that comes to you when you're hurting, and it doesn't mean that things are all better, but his presence comes to you, and it's enough. It's what you need. It's not what you think you need, but it's what you need. We could look at a thousand different characters in the Bible who cried out to the Lord, and he met them with himself. And it was enough. And it wasn't a happily ever after. I'm talking about men and women that were martyred for their faith, sawed in half, stoned. One man is called the weeping prophet. He was called to preach to a people that he was told wouldn't listen to him. He knew what it was like to cry out to God. God met him with himself, and it was enough. It was enough. It's a deliverance that's deeply personal. It's deeply personal. I have a cousin that, uh, as a child, uh, was stung by a bee. She's allergic to bee stings, so this wasn't a small affair. And her mother, a very godly woman, 
said, Sylvia, the first most important thing you need to do is be calm. Your Heavenly Father loves you, and you need to remain calm throughout this whole thing. She gently removed the stinger, and if you talk to the mom later, she said, I was freaking out too. I was coming unglued, but I knew that the presence of God would calm her. So I kept reminding her, God is in this, you need to remain calm. And the whole incident just passed by without going, without escalating at all. Fast forward to Sylvia being 36 years of old, 36 years of age, and she has a brain aneurysm. She goes to the hospital, she said, I was terrified. And she said, uh, the, the doctor said something, did something called, a, I think it's called an arteriogram, where they go in through the vein of your leg and they go in through your heart, and it's this thing that goes into your brain, this little tiny camera, to take pictures of where the problem area is. And she said, I was told not to speak, just to remain very still. And she said, I was coming absolutely unglued. And she said, and the anesthesiologist, before he started this procedure, he said, Sylvia, this is gonna hurt a little bit. Think of it like a beast. And immediately, I thought back in my mind, I could hear my mom saying, you need to be calm. You need to rest. God is in this. And she said, I had a spiritual moment during that arteriogram. <laughs> Do you know what? The reason I share that story is because I want us to understand how personal, how intimately God cares for us when we're struggling. He knows what it's like when we're there, when we feel like we can't see any other perspective but our own. And deliverance doesn't just mean, oh, I gotta come through for Wakita. I promised her I would, oh, I guess I'll just, and she's free. It comes through in the most intimately, personal ways that, that I hope makes your jaw drop. Many of you have had that experience when you're hurting. You experience God coming to you and it's what you need. It's not what you hoped for. It's not the happily ever after, but it's a reminder of the presence of God that in that, for Sylvia, the remarkable, intricate way that was so personal, that surgeon, that anesthesiologist had no idea he was being used in that manner. And yet God used him. God used him to bring deliverance for her. It's a confidence that God gives us that the one who raises the dead that's the one we're trusting in. That's the one we're trusting in. Nobody else raises the dead. The one who raises the dead, he's going to bring our deliverance. We can, we can depend on a God like that. We can depend on a God like that. Finally, I want us to look at the way God uses suffering in our lives to feature his own design. There are many ways we could look at verse 11 about our role in prayer and how God uses something that we do, something I'll never understand, to accomplish his means, but I want to kind of look at this in a back-and-forth kind of way. Verse 11, you also joining and helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Think about this for a moment. Not so much our role in prayer, which is important, but again, why would God choose to use something we touch something that we do to accomplish his means. We already know, and I mean this whole passage is being burdened and weak 
and unable to see beyond ourselves, why would a holy, wise, sovereign, omnipotent God recognize our weakness and say, oh, oh yeah, that's the way I want to accomplish this. I'm going to use the prayers of those tiny, little, frail, weak people. I will use them to accomplish my needs. Does that make sense to you? That doesn't make sense to me. I don't get that. I don't get that. So I know there's more to it. I'll tell you why it's not, why he doesn't do it. It's not because we're smart. We like to think, well, he just recognizes that we have a little bit of wisdom to bring. We have some things to bring. No. I guarantee you that is not the reason God uses us. Not at all. Not at all. There ought to be lots of nodding heads out there. Oh, yes. Um, the focus of this passage is to bring suffering believers into full trust and reliance on him. After this is established, once we're persuaded that he will deliver us, I hope there's a confidence in that deliverance, but also a curiosity about the design. Why in the world does he do this? Why does he do this? Uh, for an illustration, think of... Um, Think of having a business right here in Lincoln Village, and uh, and you've been working at it. It's sort of a dream of yours. Whatever, whatever you have in your in your life and your heart, that is a desire. God has been blessing, and you've built a business up, and it has been successful, and it has made thousands of dollars and tens of thousands of dollars, and it's right on the mark to be going going between hundreds of thousands of dollars and possibly a million dollars, and you've got this business that is monumentally expanding right here in Lincoln Village and you come to the realization where, that you need help I can't do this on my own anymore but I don't want just help I've spent my whole life my whole savings account my passion, my time, my talents on this business I've got to have somebody who shares my passion who will join with me who will take this business as seriously as I do those are the kind of people that I want to join my business. Can you imagine an interview with a person, the first applicant comes through the door, and you sit them down and you say, okay, here's you know, what my business is about. Let me ask you some questions about yourself. Uh, do you have any kind of experience with this kind of you know, industry? No, no, not really. All right, hey, okay. Uh, Maybe uh, education. What was? How high did you go in school? Do you, uh, you know, finish high school? Do you, do you happen to go to college? Any master, postgraduate? How far did you go in school? Well, you know what? I dropped out in the uh, seventh grade. Really? What was going on? I just didn't see a need for it anymore. Well, how did you spend your time? Well, uh, man, I wrestled with drugs. Still do a little bit. Well, I, I, I real honestly, I do a lot. Um, I've been to rehab, but they, they didn't really understand me. Um, and uh, they, they just don't know my needs. And, oh, okay, well, hold on. Um, are you willing to learn? Are you willing to learn? Well, i got to be honest with you. When I feel like it, <laughs> when I feel like it, i got to be really motivated. And I'm not really easily motivated. But when I am, I'm there for you. I'm there for you. Uh, Get here on time? Can you even get here on time? <laughs> Thing about that, not really a morning person. Uh, when my alarm goes off, sometimes I feel like it's a car alarm across the street. And I go, oh, it sucks to be that guy. And I just ignore it. 
And eventually, when I do wake up, and I really yawn, and yeah, I'm there. I'm there. This can be anywhere between 10.30 and 2. And you got my whole heart and attention for at least an hour and a half when I'm there. You know, and I could go on and on with this illustration. Do you know what? For the man that is interviewing that applicant to say, you're hired. That's, you're the kind of guy I want. That actually makes more sense than what God does involving us in anything he's trying to do. Do you see that? This marvelous design of doing amazingly beautiful things that will shut your mouth and bring a chills down your spine of the beautiful way that he will work dependence and deliverance in your life. And he's inviting you to touch it, to be a part of it. I hope it, I hope it makes your mind swim. I hope it does. It makes my mind swim. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And um, if you think about this kind of love, this kind of involvement, this kind of commitment to deliver you, this is the same God who loved us first when we were hostile to him. When we gave God the finger, he embraces us. When we told him we didn't want anything to do with him, and in our anger and short-sightedness ran away from him, he ran after us. He didn't go, okay, I'll wait for you to figure it out. He pursues the lost sheep. And when he brings that lost sheep back, there is more rejoicing in heaven than the 99 of the remaining flock that didn't stray. He loves that much. He loves that much. And if you contemplate in your minds a God who's that committed, who loves that much, it gets a little easier to depend on a God like that. It inspires a little bit more confidence for deliverance that comes from a God like that. And as you think about the design of all the ways that he could have done it to design a way for us to be involved, to be invited into his kingdom work, it just kind of makes me want to stand up a little bit more straight. Beautiful thing. Don't miss it. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word is so beautiful. Father, as we come to you with our suffering, whatever it is, we remember that you're the one that raises the dead. You can do all things. And we praise you for that. And we wholeheartedly give you every part of our suffering, every part of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.